welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host Albert, and this is episode 62. Hey, who turned off the lights? Hey, who turned off the lights? Hey everybody, welcome back. We're in the middle of summer, and it seems uh, things are going slow, and I'm busy. So I think we're at about two and a half, maybe three weeks since the last show, not sure. I have not done as much as I should for the podcast, so we shall see how this goes. This episode has more variety than the typical show. I don't think it's going to be any longer though, but we'll, we'll see again. So first up, the news. There is a new guild on BGG. It's a solo RPG guild. It's uh, just like the one-player guild for board games and playing in general. There's a solitaire role-playing guild now, so you could go there if you're interested in solitaire role-playing. You could still go to the one-player guild. You're welcome to talk about RPGs there, but there's also a dedicated place. I also came across a Yahoo group on Solitaire Gaming. I'm sorry, not a Yahoo group, a Google Hangout. I will include a link for that also. If you backed uh, GMT's Fire in the Lake, this is, the, I believe, the fourth game in their coin series. It is now charging. You probably got charged for it by now, so that means it will be shipping. If you did not... Uh, pre-order in their p500 you still can do that and get it at their p500 prices they generally give you a little while to do that so you may want to tr- check that out the solitaire print and play contest as of today it today's the deadline for submitting games that are, are ready for the contest they're complete you now have about 40 days or so to print them out and play all the different games and vote on them the voting deadline is i believe through september 13th Next up, I've got two Kickstarter games. One is Agents of Smirsh, the second edition. It is on Kickstarter now for about hundred and ten. I'm sorry, for about hundred and ten dollars, you could get um, everything that's available, which includes a bunch of Kickstarter exclusive type things and all that. Agents of Smirsh, I haven't played it. From what I know about it, it is a a storytelling game, sort of like the Arabian Nights, sort of like Arabian Nights in that. Um, there's a big book, and as you do stuff, you have to refer to different pages in the book to find out what's going. Also reminiscent of Sherlock Holmes, Consultant Detective. It looks pretty neat. It is a game based on um, being a spy. It's James Bondish from the look of it. And the second Kickstarter game is called District Z. This is a cooperative game for one to four players. And it is about fighting zombies. That's about as much as I know, but it's a nice looking game. Next up, I got a geek mail from a listener, Carl. He mentions that there is a challenge card for Magic. Um, it's called Garuk the Slayer, and it came with the last pre-release pack. It is designed to be controlled by another player while you play solo. However, he's been uh, playing it as a by himself and sort of managing the card himself with some rules modifications. And it's been working out pretty well for him, so you may want to check that out. Uh, unfortunately, it comes in the pre-release pack, which is something like $24. If you're not interested in getting that, that may be a problem. However, as uh, Carl mentions, many veteran players may not actually be interested in the card and really just interested in the regular Magic cards. It's not something you could use in a normal game. So you may be able to find somebody who will just give you their card. Uh, he also went on to mention that uh, he enjoyed the episode on Rory Story Cubes. Wants to hear more about this, so let me see if I could talk a little more about it today and maybe more in the future. And he had a, a few criticisms about audio quality, which unfortunately is true. Uh, I, I don't know why I'm bad at it, but I do keep trying. 
unfortunately, I think uh, to really fix audio, you need to do things like have a padded room. And I'm probably not going to go there, unfortunately. And finally, he had some ideas about subjects he'd like to hear about. I'm going to read these out. How to create... No, number one. How to create and use an automated opponent or where to find something similar. Uh, number two. Designers talking about designing specifically for solitaire play. Number three, solo RPGs and how to create interesting stories. Four, solo games for traveling or that take up little space but are deep to play. I have talked about solitaire travel games before way back. I could find, I'll have to find that episode number. It's probably a subject that could be revisit, revisited every once in a while though. Excuse me. Okay, number five, how to actually play, how to host a dungeon correctly. I must be doing something wrong. None of my dwarf sieves make it past the sixth population you know i think you're doing better than i am because when i tried it out it took me hours and i don't think i even had much of a population either the the game is really neat but it's confusing and for anybody that doesn't know how to host a dungeon is basically a game to it's kind of strange calling it a game because more of an activity it's, it's a way to build a random dungeon and it has mechanics a lot like a game, but I don't think it's the sort of thing where you win or lose. It's more of a... It's the kind of game where you end up with a, a dungeon at the end and a story for it. Anyway, number six. How to find more about solo games. Number seven. How to be an ambassador for solo games. Solo is a dirty word in the board game hobby. Number eight. Info on solo mass battle war games. And number nine. How to be more impartial as the robot or automated player. Now, these are all really good topics. Um, I, I'm going to try and cover some of these. Some of these I think I am awfully unqualified to talk about, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Now, I'm going to say here that if anybody ever would like to cover any topic and be on the podcast, you are more than welcome to. Please just let me know, and, you know, I'll be happy to have any, any guests on to, to cover their favorite topic or review a game or do a whole episode. Please just contact me because uh, the more help I get, the better all the shows could be. So this is the time of year when a lot of games start coming out. There is a Gen Cons in August, and then in October there is a SN Game Fair. Th these are two big uh, times for games to be released. So in BGG there is now a geek list for all the games known to be coming out at Gen Con, another one for the ones in Essen. The one in Essen just got started a few days ago, so it's going to grow a lot. At this point, Gen Con is only two weeks away. So I thought I would go through the list and identify all the solitaire games and let you know what they are in case you're going and you might be interested in finding those. Now, by no means is this list meant to be exhaustive, but uh, I've not done a lot of legwork to compile it. I seriously just went through a BGG geek list and I then looked at all the games that said one or more players. I created a geek list for myself where I just copied all the information from the main list for these games that are one or more players. And I will post a link to that also in case you want to check that out. Actually, I recommend you go straight to the Gen Con list. It's about nine pages. It's not too bad. And uh, there's just a lot of new games. There's almost, well, there's 23 games that I found that are one or more players. So I'm just going to read them through more or less quickly. The first one is Agents of Smirch, Swagman's Hope. I just mentioned Agents of Smirch. Smirch? Oh, I don't know how to say that. I just mentioned this one in the news because it's on Kickstarter. What they're kickstarting is actually not just a second edition, I believe, but this expansion. 
So this expansion will be new. It's one to five players. It's cooperative. And as I said, you could get it at the Kickstarter also. Now, if you already own Agents of Smirsh, I believe the Kickstarter has a upgrade component so you could also get along with this expansion. So you may want to check that out. The second one is Run, Fight, Die. It's a zombie dice rolling game. I don't know much more. It looks like it's a, a small compact game. Well, no. The suggested retail price is about $50. Next up, Conflict of Heroes Awakening the Bear, the solo expansion. This game has been about to come out any day now for the last year or so, and I think this this time that's really it. It'll be a Gen Con. The, the price for that one's $35. This is an expansion for Conflict of Heroes Awakening the Bear, so you need that game. Preferably the second edition, but you should be able to play with the first edition from what I've read. There's another one called Heroes Wanted. It looks like a cooperative uh, game about being superheroes. Number five, Spirits of the Rice Paddy. This is a neat looking game. It's a worker placement game. You know, honestly, reading up the description sort of reminds me of a Miyazaki cartoon. I don't know how accurate uh, that is, but that's the sense I get of it. I don't have a price for that one. Number six, Consequential. This is a fantasy game, one to five players, cooperative. It's a fantasy sci-fi game, actually. That's interesting. That's about a two-hour, yeah, about a 60-minute game. Next, a really neat-looking one called Massels, I'm sorry, not Massels, called Castles of Mad King Ludwig. And this is about, uh, I don't remember his full name, but King Ludwig of Bavaria, I believe. And uh, he was known for building some crazy castle. And in this game, you're building castles. It's got a really nice-looking cover. Check it out just for that. Oh, this will be on display, not on sale yet. I'm guessing it'll be on sale at Spiel. That one is designed by Ted Alspeck also. The next one is also by Ted Alspeck? No. The next one is Subdivision. Um, it is one to four players. It is a city building game with card drafting, dice rolling, and tile placement. That one's about $50. Next one is Pazic, the post-apocalyptic zombie-infested city. It's a zombie game. I'm not sure why I picked this one up because it says three to six players in the description. Huh. Anyway, you may want to check that out. It sounds interesting. And number ten, Munchkin Panic. Um, Steve Jackson has been working with other companies lately to to do Munchkin themed versions of all sorts of games. This one is a, a Munchkin version of Castle Panic, which is a one through five or one through six player cooperative game where you're defending a castle from attacking hordes of monsters. This one seems to be about the same, with that Munchkin theme and art. Number 11, Zombie Island. Oh, this is a 1-4 through four player game in which you are in an, on an island, and are trying to get in, get the stuff you need, and get back out. And it does have some... Uh, it does include a solo game. From what I remember, the solo game is not as involved as the multiplayer game. It was on Kickstarter, and I was I looked and I said, "Oh, this looks interesting." I kind of want it back. And then when I watched the video, it just didn't seem like for a solitaire play I was gonna enjoy it. So, so you may want to check that out. But I think you know, be a little careful if you're looking for just solitaire play. Number twelve, Shadows of Brimstone, City of Ancients. It's a one to four player adventuring American West dice exploration game. And it's co-op. And there is another one called Shadows of Brimstone, Swamps of Death. Um, looks like there's two games with the same setting, and I'm guessing they could be put together. 
but they they look really similar. They both look pretty cool, actually. Number fourteen, Samurai Spirit, one through seven players. You and your feral samurai companions are the only standing obstacle between one frightened village and a f- full horde of bloodthirsty villains. Next is Mad City. Actually, this game seems to be available because my friend local game store has it. It's a one to six player game about building a city. It looks rather light. I thought it kind of reminded me of the game Cities. In a way, it's it's a tiling game and more abstract than not. But I don't know much more about that. I think it's a game where you're supposed to be playing fast. Oh, number 16, Alien Uprising. One through five player co-op game. Looks like you're fighting aliens. Hopefully in a spaceship, but maybe not. Yeah, there's a Crewman expansion and a Rex Nova expansion. and Yeah, I think you're on a ship. Number 17, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Skull and Shackles Base Set. So this is like the Pathfinder card game that came out last year, except this is a a new standalone expansion, and it's more pirate-themed. Number 18, Mice and Mystics, Downwood Tales, an expansion for Mice and Mystics, one of four players. I really need to try this game solo, because I got it for Christmas to play with the family, and We've played a few times, but haven't gone back to it. So it's just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. Number 19, Imperial Settlers. I keep thinking it's some sort of Settlers of Gatan thing, but I guess not. It's one of four players, and it's made by Portal Publishing. Designed by Ignazi Trevishek. That name might ring a bell. He's the designer of Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island. Number 20, Lagoon, Lands of Druid. This is a one of four player game that was on Kickstarter earlier. Now, I just got an update from them recently from the Kickstarter campaign, and it won't actually be available for sale yet at uh, Gen Con, but it's not far from being available, I think, within two months or so. Number 21, Legendary... Number 21, Legendary, Villains Marvel Deck Building Game. Let me try to say that differently. Legendary Villains Marvel Deck Building Game. So this is a one of five-player game... Based on that Marvel deck building game, I'm not sure if it's a standalone expansion or what, but it is related to that game, one through five players. Number 22, Incredible Expeditions, Quest for Atlantis. One through five players, co-op game. Uh, looks like an adventuring kind of game. Number 23, ba- The Battle at Kemble's Cascade. This is published by Z-Man Games. It's one of five players. It's 45 minutes. It's a sci-fi video game theme. It's a well, it's basically a board game adaption of a classic shoot 'em up video game. So there you go. That's a quick rundown of all the games that I found that are solitaire, plus one that isn't. Actually, I, I left one out. That was a hobby game so for kids, but I was trying to focus more on more adulty games. Adulty is now a word. So like I said, there's 23 games listed, almost one full page out of. Nine pages of games, that's about 10% of the games at Gen Con this year. Well, at least at the Gen Con Geek List that support solitaire play. Okay, so that was Gen Con. Okay, so I, I want to revisit the discussion about solo RPG from last week. Uh, I talked about using more Story Cubes, but you know, honestly I think we could have done a little bit better job. I'm going to try and give you some more information. We'll see how it goes. I Honestly, I don't think I'm a good person to give you good, uh, good information about Solar RPG because my experience is a little bit limited. You know, after I posted that episode last week, a few days later, I'm going to um, 
RPG Geek to look up the the game I played because I was writing up my my playthrough, and uh, I came across a post about solo RPG, and you know added a comment on there, and there's some more discussions, and next thing you know, there's now a solitaire RPG guild. It is being uh, run by Kenny Norris, Kenny the Cabbage, and as a matter of fact, he's got a a mailing list that you might want to subscribe to. It's free, and it has information about solitaire RPG, and he gives you a you know breakdown about the different things you're going to need and that sort of stuff, the mindset you want to have. So that might be a good uh, thing to check out if you want to learn more about solo RPG. I know he is also going to be doing some sort of commercial solo RPG product. I don't know much about it. I know it's using the Fate system. I've never used the Fate system, so I don't know. You know I can't give you any comment there. I want to talk more about the way I did the RPG. You know, just as a reminder, what I did, I picked a game I wanted to play. I made a character, and I came up with an adventure. and I And I picked my adventure by going to the Cosmic Patrol Player's Guide that I've got and looking at the story hooks and just picking one that sounded really interesting and workable. And then from that, I just started writing down on paper my my adventure, uh, the way I thought it'd be going. And every time I felt I needed to have some sort of twist, some something unexpected or unplanned. I'd pull out nine Rory Story Cubes, roll them, and from those nine, pick three, and use those three to decide, you know, what happens next that's out of my mind as the player's control. So that's how I did it, and I just kept doing that, and, you know, I'd decide what's going on, and I'd start writing with that in mind. <clears throat> I suggest you look at the, the forum post I did, well, not the forum post, but in the Rory Story Cubes page on BGG, I have a session report detailing how I did that. It's got images and examples and explanations and stuff. So that, so that actually might be pretty helpful to check that out. Now, I think where, where solo RPG gets tricky is that, you know, in, in an RPG, there's usually two points of view. And that's basically the same as in a board game. You have the players and you have the... Well, it's not the same as the board game. Okay. Now, the thing about an RPG is that, that makes it really tricky is that generally you have the players and you have the DM or the GM or whatever. Um, and as a player, you're controlling your character and you basically just know what your character knows. And then the DM is telling you what's going on in the world basically outside of your control. In a solo RPG, you need somebody to control that. And since you're the only one there, that's going to be you. Now... The trick becomes how to give yourself information you don't know. I chose to use Rory Story Cubes to roll up something unexpected and go from there. Uh, now, my experience, as I played through it, I, I realized I didn't quite do it right. I think I was doing a lot more creative writing than role-playing. And I think the reason is I wasn't relying enough on the RPG rule sets. I used the theme from it a lot, and you know, I was basically writing down a story about that. But I, I kept forgetting to do different kinds of checks and rolls to see how things would work out. I just, if Rory Story Cube said um, there might be something there, I just assume I saw it. I think when you're doing an RPG solo, you, you want to remember to use all those things. Just because something might be there doesn't mean you automatically are going to interact with it or even interact the way with it you expect to. You want to remember to roll your dice and that sort of thing to make sure things work. For example, in my adventure, I was going through a jungle, and then I rolled some dice, and it said, oh, there's some some supplies, 
and and there's a cave nearby. Well, I just assumed I saw the supplies and I saw the cave and all that. Maybe I should have actually rode because I'm in a jungle to see if I spotted that stuff. The supplies, you know, might have actually been pretty small. At that point, I didn't even know what it was. So why did I assume I saw it? If I had actually been rolling dice, then it would have actually ended up being, I think, more interactive in more unexpected in what was going on and more gamey. And I think that's the key right there. You want something gamier because you're role-playing as opposed to writing a story. Unfortunately for me, when I actually finally realized that and decided to, to use the game system to, to play more instead of just write, I fought a monster and died. <laughs> that just ended my adventure right there. Now, there are other systems for solo RPG, and they all, from what I've seen, amount more or less to the same thing is to to give you unexpected turns in your adventure. And some are more complex, and some are simpler. The The important thing is that there is something to give you inspiration to turn things in an unexpected way. The other thing that some of these systems supply is a narrative structure. Now, some people may find that helps them. If, they don't, if you don't really know where to start, you're not sure where to end, one of these systems might say, well, first you need to to set up the story this way, and then you need to do that part, and then you need to do the third part. Um, and that kind of structure is nice, especially if you're at a point where you get stuck and you're not sure where to go. You could always turn back to your structure and say, well, what's supposed to happen next in my structure? If you're just playing more freeform, um, it could get tricky, I think, and you could get sidetracked from your from your role-playing adventure. It could be really easy, I think, to, to roll the dice and have something totally unexpected that, you know, honestly, if you step back, doesn't really fit with, with your game and what's going on. For example, you might be having an adventure where you're chasing some bad guys and you roll some dice and suddenly you find there's a pizza hut there and you stop to eat pizza and then you go off and do something else and you totally forgot the fight. Right? Okay. So it's a weird adventure still, but the point is you want to make sure to keep your focus of the game and the narrative structures might help with that. One system that has them is the Nine Cues, which also uses Rory Story Cubes, and the Covetous Poets Adventure Creator is another one. Mythic also, if I remember, it has some structure in it. Of the ones I actually know to some degree, that's the most complicated one. So hopefully that helps. Um, I went ahead and talked about structure and how to play the opposing side in a solitaire RPG. I, you know, if I can, I will try and cover some more on this if I think of more stuff to say. Please feel free to, to send me any questions if you want to know more about it, about my thoughts on it. So today's game is Duel in the Dark. It was designed by Friedman de Pedro and released originally in 2007 and then a second edition in 2009. Um... This is a World War II game in which, well, which is designed for two players actually. One player as the British controls a bomber, a fleet of bombers, and a, a fleet of mosquitoes, which is a, a type of fighter plane. The other player controls German fighters that are, well, controls German fighters. Uh, as the, the British players go is to attack Germany, bomb a city, and get back. And the British players go is to defend from these, this attacking force. The solitaire game, you're playing just as the German side. Um, that is because actually, in, as the British player, whether it's a human or not, 
all the moves are programmed, it, the human player would actually sit down and pick cards in order for all the moves he's going to want to do. And then, for the bomber. And then once the actual gameplay starts, he just plays those cards and moves the bomber in the order he had picked already. The only action he would actually choose to do is how he moves the mosquitoes. He has free choices with that. So, so converting this to solid play is not that hard because you already got the cards to determine the movement. You just shuffle them and draw them randomly. Now, before I talk about the game and the gameplay, um, be interesting to mention this game has a bit of an unfortunate history. The original edition from 2007 when it was printed, it was published by Z-Man Games. At least the English edition was, I think. And, um, unfortunately, it apparently was published in a plant in, uh, China, in a hu hot, humid part of the country, and was then put in containers, and by the time it got to destination, many of the copies had serious mold issues. Some to the point of being unplayable, some you know, people just set aside for years or have worked hard to try and clean them up, and some people had luck, some didn't. Z-Man did go and get a second edition printed and printed replacement parts and tried to fix everything and make it well. Unfortunately, I think that the game really suffered because of that. The A lot of people knew about it, that this happened, so I think when the second edition came out, it just never sold well. Probably because of that. People already knew there was mode issues and they just avoided it. You know, I got my copy off Tanga actually and I paid like $12 for it or something. And it was the second edition. Even then, I was really nervous about getting it and bringing it home. And once I had it, I was scared to open the box. You know, I'm pretty sure that affected a lot of people. And that's a shame because it's a really interesting game. So, so I already told you more or less the point of the game, right? You're, you're playing as a German. Controlling four fighter planes and moving around the board, defending from the Germans. I'm sorry, defending from the British attack. It, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you're playing as a German. Um, cause, you know, I think in most games, usually you play as a the uh, the Allied forces, and the Germans are always the the opponent or the bad guy. In this game, at least in the solo version, you're you're playing the Germans, and the bad guys would be the Allies. And it, you know, I don't have an issue doing that, but it, it's just weird. <laughs> it's just weird to say that. So this game has a, a board, a pretty big board, and it's made up of a lot of large hex spaces. The board is a map of German and the southeast corner of England. Well, I guess the map is probably Germany and parts of France, that part of Europe that was controlled by uh, Germany. The, it's a really pretty map with really interesting art style. Um, it's, it's a very dark map also, and I guess that's because you're flying in the nighttime. Besides that map, well, and it's also cool that the, if you flip the map over to the back side, the back is printed with the pictures of different things that affected the, the air raids and the wars over, probably over Europe and England. It, it'll explain and then it'll show pictures of it and then have a small chapter describing each thing. And it's in both English and German. For example, it'll talk about searchlights and how they were used and that sort of thing. It'll talk about the different type of artillery, the way the bomb shelter had artillery on top of the bomb shelters and stuff like that. And so it's a, it's a fair bit of information. It's really neat. And it's weird because it doesn't get used in the game at all. It's only simply there to give it more flavor and just give the person more information. Okay, so besides that, you've got the airplanes... It brings, no, I'm not sure about the original version, 
My version, the second edition, actually brought an expansion in it, and it has an extra plane. But it brings, otherwise it brings two British planes and four German planes. And these are actually cardboard planes that are mounted on sticks, little plastic sticks. And when the plane's on the ground, you slide the plane all the way to the bottom of the stick, so it's near the base. And as you take off, you slide it either halfway up to show he's flying low, or all the way up to show he's at full altitude. Um, which is pretty neat, neat way to do that. There's clouds, there's pla cardboard clouds that are also mounted on, on sticks. You don't raise or lower those, those are just at cloud height. And there's fog markers, and there's thunderstorms. And then there's a bunch of other cardboard counters, things like, uh, for the wind direction, and little hex shaped ones to where you would put as a German player where you have artillery and searchlights and radar and things like that. There are some other counters which I haven't used at all yet for um to mark veteran players. There's cardboard counters, one for each city and I should pull the game down and check it out. And then there's also a bunch of expansions in the box which are some extra different things. Um there's a couple decks of cards. There's a deck of cards for the movement for the British planes. There's a deck of weather cards. and Actually, a couple different decks of weather cards. When you're going to play, first the German player sets up his planes on one on the hexes he wants. Generally one per hex, but you could have more if you're using the some of the optional rules. And then you flip a weather card. and Well, you set up the planes and all your your ground support stuff, which again is the the radar, the artillery, the searchlights, that stuff. And then after you set all that up, then you flip a card over for the weather. It's going to show you where to put clouds and fog and thunderstorms, as well as where to put the British players, the two British planes. And it'll tell you whether the British planes are attacking the first or the second city they come across. After you've set all that up, you, are, you shuffle the cards for the the British movement, and you're ready to play. Now, the British movement cards are actually divided into two parts. There's one set, there's one set that has eastward movement, and it can either be east, northeast, or southeast. And there's another set that has westward movement for the return flights. So you're first going to draw from the east moving cards, and then from the west moving cards. And the turns are basically move your German planes, draw a card to move the British planes. And repeat. You keep doing that until the British plane reaches its destination city. And then you start drawing from the return deck. Oh, the the game also brings, I forgot to mention it, these really cool cardboard markers with a little plastic pin that looks sort of like a an airplane's a dashboard display. And it, the only thing on it really that matters is a, a gauge for fuel. And... Three of the planes have up to eight fuel. The third plane has up to 12. As you're moving your German planes around, generally speaking, it costs two fuel to move one hex. And then there's a, a wind direction. If you're flying into the wind, it costs three. If you're flying a w with the wind, it costs one. If you run out of fuel, you have to land and refuel. So now, now I've kind of described everything you get. You have the general idea. The British players are gonna, the British planes are gonna come in until they reach a city. If it's, and depending on the weather card, whether it's the first city they reach or the second city they reach, they will bomb that target city, and then they will turn back and head to Britain. 
And in the meantime, you're flying around and trying to, you're not actually trying to stop, the, you're not actually trying to stop the plane from reaching the target. You're just trying to interfere and get in the way and hurt them. And at least, you know, in, in an abstract way, that's what you're doing. What you're really doing is just trying to get experience points by having the bomber go to where you're at. It's a weird game here. The In a two-player game, well, in a solitaire game too, you're tracking victory points for both the British and the Germans. The British, generally speaking, get victory points if the Germans land or take off when the weather's bad or on a bombed airfield. They can also get experience points if the German player moves into the hex that has a mosquito. They have to move into the hex. It can't be that a mosquito moves into the hex where the German fighters are at. So it's very specific. Um, and then there's modifiers to that based on different things like the weather and what kind of uh, ground support is in that space. The German player will get victory points if the bomber moves into the hex where the fighters are at or if it moves into a hex that has some of your ground support. And that's pretty much it. Um, so your whole game, as you're playing it, it's about positioning yourself in the best place to get victory points. You know, based on the fact that you're hoping that the the German, the, the British plane is going to go into there, into that space, the next turn. So there we go. I've basically described the gameplay, and uh, as fully as I will. The the game, as I mentioned, it brings some different variants and stuff in the box, and some optional rules. It, it, you're not supposed to use the variants with a solitaire play. Uh doesn't say you can't use the optional rules, but you shouldn't use the variants. However, from what I have been reading, a lot of people do like to use the variants. This, the game seems to be skewed towards a German, where you're going to win a lot more often than you lose. And so it doesn't... And the score can... Their the variation in score can be pretty high, because it is honestly just a pretty random game. You know, those British guys can move anywhere... And a lot of the victory points can be determined by the weather. I found that the way I enjoyed the game most is in pretending I'm some sort of uh, general or something, standing over a map, planning and strategizing and watching the results of the war going on. And done that way, I think I think it was pretty neat. Setting up the game is relatively fast. It takes maybe five minutes. I found it really fun to set up all the clouds in different places and figure out, see what it's going to be like for that game session. And then the gameplay is relatively quick. Maybe another 10 minutes, maybe 15, I don't know. And then putting it away is fast. Uh, I found that I have most fun if I actually play standing around the table. The game's pretty big and I have a... I think my table's 3 feet by 4 feet and it takes a lot of space. So I could stand on the... So I could stand up and kind of walk around the table as I'm playing and, and actually find that fun. Like I said, I'm, I pretend like I'm some sort of general. The gameplay is weird because you're just trying to position yourself in the best way for that, you know, hoping that the uh, the German bom- the British bombers go to the right space. I keep having trouble because I keep wanting to think that the opponent, the bad guy, is the German, but they're, they're the British. So I'll just keep reversing that. Um, so say th- I have a feeling this game may not be for everybody. It's very simple to play. There's not a lot of Strategy, at least not that I can tell. I haven't played tons yet, but I haven't seen a lot of strategy in it. Like I said, it seems to be a lot of luck. But it's fun because it's very thematic and you could, you can throw in those variants. 
they're gonna like I said they might skew the results some but you know it, the results already saw over the place it kind of doesn't really matter this is not the kind of game you're playing for winning or losing this is a game that you're playing for the fun of just watching everything play out in front of you there is also there are also some expansions available for the game that are sold separately I haven't tried them there is two one called baby blitz and one called the early nights and uh, the Baby Blitz is actually comes in a box, and the Early Nights sort of is just a package of stuff, uh, a plastic bag. And there's also an, a plastic bag full of expansion stuff that comes in the game. So there you go. I've, I've, I think I pretty much described the gameplay. Um, I've kind of told you my feelings about it. I sort of I enjoy it. I don't. I don't think it's a great game, but I've had fun with. It. I think it's an okay game. I mentioned I got it off Tanga, and I think I probably paid twelve to fifteen dollars for it. At that price, it was definitely a deal. If I had actually bought it at the retail price, I remember when it first came out, I was at the one of my friend's local game stores at the time, and they were playing it there, and I said, oh, that looks really awesome. I want to get that. And I didn't for whatever reason. You know, it turns out that was good because of all the mode issues, and if I had paid the retail price, which was probably like $55 or so at the time, I think I would have been disappointed for um, from this game as a solitaire game. I do think as a two-player game, it's very interesting. You're going to... Though I haven't tried that yet. You can basically play a few rounds and everybody's going to get a chance to play each side. The game is fast enough that you can actually do that without any trouble. Now unfortunately it is no longer available on Tanga and it's no doesn't no longer seem to be available for that low price. It wasn't until a few months ago. And it's a shame I'm finally getting to this game now because I've had it on my notebook and the short list of games I want to talk about for, for a year or two honestly. And if I'd mentioned it two years ago you could have gotten it on Tanga. Probably if I'd mentioned it last year you could have gotten it on Tanga. Or other places for pretty cheap. Now it seems to run closer to thirty to forty dollars. You could probably trade for it on BGG, and I think it's available on BGG for sale. Let's look real quick. I'm here. Where's the marketplace? Marketplace, where are you? Yeah, you can get it for about twenty to twenty-five dollars on BGG plus shipping. Somebody has one on eBay for eighty dollars with no bids. I you know. Even if you're playing two players, avoid that one. Unless it's got all the expansions. The expansions, at least one or two of them still seem to be pretty available in the different online retailers. You can also check Amazon. Some of the stuff is available on Amazon. There was a sister game called uh, Duel of the Giants that was made with tanks. That one has plastic tanks. Not tanks. Uh, that one has plastic tanks instead of cardboard airplanes. It looks really neat, but that one apparently doesn't have solitaire variants. I'm guessing it doesn't have a programmed opponent like this one does. Um, and that one is still available. And you can find that one on Tanga for $12 or so. So there you go. Duel in the Dark, the okay game that you can no longer get. One more thing I almost forgot to mention. I really like the design of this game. You know, I mentioned the map is really cool. I like the way the box looks. I like the the planes and the sliding stands and all that. Everything about the game is really, really nice looking. One thing I noticed the other night as I was going through the rule book, I was talking to my son. My son watched me play and he really enjoyed it and all. Um, so I think it's a fun game to, to do if you're doing it with your kids or something like that. But one thing I noticed is that it's such a nice touch. The rule book is in English and German. The German pages, the background is sort of a, a German, that gray steelish color. And the the British pages, the background are more British colors. Um, and yeah, it's just so cool. They didn't really have to do that sort of thing. 
But when you realize that, flipping, looking for the pages in your language is much easier to find. And it's just, that attention to detail is so nice and, you know, it makes me appreciate the game even more. Um, and, and it makes me sad that the game didn't seem to do very well. Because, you know, obviously it was a game that got a lot of love for the, the production and the design and all that. So, alright. Duel in the Dark. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at OnePlayerAlbert at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek list on BoardGameGeek, or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.